we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. This is Dave Debo, and for the balance of the program today, we're talking with Glenada Garlock. I've got a resume in front of me, folks, and um, I, I figured we'd talk about a lot of your activism, but with particular regard to the legal community. She's a law student at UB. She's been involved in several, many of their clinics and involved in a lot of different activism projects. And I think from that view, we can look at some of the problems and some of the hope and some of the things that need to happen in Buffalo. Glenada, thanks for thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited for this discussion. I I have to say, I had a past guest on the program who recommended you and said she's she's outspoken <laughs> and she's good. That was recommendation enough. But then I got your email, and the, the, the signature on your email really struck me because you are vice president, Latin American Law Students Association. That's at the bottom of the email. Co-president, Native Indigenous Law Students Association, and on the DEI Council for the Black Law Students Association, Outlaw. I'm not about to say someone can't be French and German and Italian all at the same time. Certainly there are people that are Latin American and indigenous and black all at the same time. But I don't think there are a lot of people who are activists in each of those arenas all at the same time. But you are. Yeah, I value all the parts of myself. I'm also president of parents and law students, too, um, because parent is a huge part of my identity, too. And I just couldn't advocate for one without advocating for all of the parts of me. So, <laughs> Are the issues the same across the board? Is there a unifying theme? There's a unifying theme, I think, of just alienation and just people using your identity against you instead of using it as um, something to celebrate. Um, Give me an example. What do you mean? So being a parent is an easy thing a lot of people will view being a parent and i was a single mom for years as being a big burden but i think especially in the legal career for me it's just empowered me so much i'm able to connect with more people to understand what they're going through i have a knowledge that people who didn't raise a child or were a single mom wouldn't have um and so i view it as a superpower and other people might view it mm -hmm. as an inconvenience because we all bring our different backgrounds to the table exactly what someone might think in one case is a, a detriment as is you use the word superpower yeah exactly how has being a mom informed your work? So I had my son at 16. I was uh, senior year. I was pregnant all junior year. I had him the start of senior year. Um, it's funny because I remember it being so easy and I don't know how I did it. Um, <laughs> but but it was a lot because I was in school um, working three part-time jobs. I had I was in subsidized housing. My life was just honestly crazy. 
But I know what it's like now to struggle. I know what it's like to have to balance 155 things and then still have to put significant time into raising a whole other person. Um, and so now that I'm in a privileged position of about to become a lawyer and being a student attorney, I'm able to really see what people are struggling with and that the small matter in front of me is really just a small part of all the chaos in their life. And I'm able to appreciate that on a different level. So it really helps me. You you come with an automatic empathy. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what happens. Let, let, let's look at one of those struggles. And I know this is an issue that is dear to you. The idea of housing. Yes. Once you become an attorney, and some of your work already has, has dealt with the idea of housing. What is the housing problem in Buffalo, and how do we fix it? Big question, I know, but let's uh, let's break it down a little bit. Yeah, so there's a few big issues. I mean, right now we're having an affordable housing crisis, um, and there's two big prongs to that. You know, there's the public housing aspect, and then there's even becoming a homeowner. Like, the inflation rates on houses right now is insane, and the requirements to buy a house. I'm currently trying to buy a house, and I have a pretty secure future, and it's even impossible for me to get approved for a mortgage right now, even with um, my sound financial standing right now. And then we have an issue of affordable housing. Um, just all of the public housing is waitlisted. Um, a lot of times the public housing can be in, in not the safest areas. You know, we don't have any, we have a couple pu public housing units in the suburbs, but we need significantly more. Just because you're, um, you have to live in public housing doesn't mean that you should have to live in dangerous parts of Buffalo. You should be able to live in Amherst and, um, and in the good parts of Chittawaga and Clarence and stuff like that. Um, and a huge problem then, it trickles down to the schools because um, I don't have the exact number on me today, but in my undergraduate studies, I remember learning the number of teenage girls who don't have stable housing. And it was over like 15, 20%, I remember. It was something so shocking. And I just remember thinking like, if you don't even have a stable place to live, how are yeah. you going to go to high school and focus on yeah. this, on your grades and stuff? Yeah, if, um, if, if the housing is substandard, if you're kept up at night by, I don't know, rats crawling through the walls. Exactly. Um, then basic uh, math and history don't matter quite as not, much. Not at all. Not at all. And then you have the issue of um, if these kids are struggling at home with housing insecurity, food insecurity, and then they're going to school to be disciplined um, for however they're acting in school. And that could affect their whole record, um, them even being able to be allowed in school or going to college. Um, and, it, and it all honestly stems from not having a stable life at home. Let's look at some of the solutions, though. You talked about the idea of more public housing, not necessarily in the city of Buffalo. Yeah. I can remember several years back when then Erie County Executive Joel Giambra started talking about regionalism. Yeah. And maybe having the school district from Clarence, Rich Clarence, end up being somehow more involved with Buffalo or going to some sort of unigov where the city of Buffalo is kind of absorbed into the entire county. And while people in the city liked that idea, the folks in, hypothetically speaking here, Amherst, Cheektowaga, weren't exactly keen on that. That there, there might have been a little racism going on there. How would you plunk down a housing unit in, say, Amherst or Cheektowaga without having to deal with the big R? So this is actually a great question for me because I grew up in Akron, New York. Oh, my. <laughs> so there's only a couple of people that look like me out in Akron. Um, so I've dealt with all of it. Surprisingly, 
the people who oppose things are actually a smaller number than you would imagine. There's a lot more people who support and even would actively want. Um, it's just a lot of times those people are non-confrontational people, so they're not the ones speaking out against it. Um, so I think it comes with it comes with two things. One, empathy in in sharing knowledge. So actively teaching people like why this is important and and like showing positive examples of it happening without the chaos and another thing is timing you know whenever you change something really rapidly there's going to be a huge pushback so maybe before it happens for like a year we talk about it happening and we we have public town halls where people can voice their concerns and then you're able to mitigate those concerns by showing them the facts of the situation that maybe their concerns aren't really accurate um so i think it just comes with care and being empathetic to even the people who are a little racist because even though their views are wrong they have them for a reason and instead of just fighting and trying to um, understand I think you can solve a lot more problems with honey than vinegar oh now that, that's interesting we, we've talked on <laughs> we've talked in this program a lot about race relations yeah and I think you might be the first if not, if not, <laughs> if not certainly one of a few to say we don't have to like the racism but we at least need to, am I putting words in your mouth here, understand it? I honestly, I do. I'm not a racist empath, but I just grew up with it. And what I learned is that people aren't racist because of your skin tone. They're racist because of some perception of what they think your skin tone means. Fear. Yeah. And I've obviously shown a lot of people that I'm adverse to what their opinions of me are at at the first um, at the first glance, and I know a lot of people who do struggle with racism, um, trying to find exceptions for me, and when they do that, it's very easy for me to challenge their ideological as a whole. I'm nothing unique, but I'm not the way I am because I'm black, and I'm not. There's so much more to me than just being black. And when yeah. I'm able to challenge that one situation, then they're able to use it to all their other situations. They're able to question their views. Like, am I judging this person before really knowing them? Um, and I, I've seen a lot of people actually change. Um, and I know that's a weird thing, but I actually have. And that's why I'm not ashamed of being from Akron, um, because I think it makes me a better person to be able to bridge the gaps between our really racist rural area, our kind of racist suburb area, and then yeah. our diverse city. And and you also said, um, let's say we were going to plunk down a, uh, a public housing unit in Akron. The, you, you, you sketched out a very legalistic, this is why you're a law student, yeah. <laughs> a, a solution there. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out what the problems are. Let's mitigate the problems. That is a, a structure that almost springs out of the, uh, the seeker. Uh, Environmental Quality Review Act stuff. Let's figure out what the problem is. Let's mitigate the problem. Let's not automatically say no because zoning allows this to happen. Yes. But let's figure out how to make it happen in ways that can mitigate the likely problems. Yeah, and that approach should be for everything. Being in my situation of activism, there are so many problems that I've been able to solve just by caring and being willing to actually think it through and put the work in. Um, because honestly, a lot of our problems aren't just problems that don't have solutions. It's just there's not enough people who are willing to do the solutions. Let's talk a little bit about your activism. What would be your number one cause? Everything is equity. Everything is access. 
I got to where I am, not because, well, I did have a little access growing up in Akron, you know, it's a little privilege of a place, but, um, but a lot of the things that I did, I did because I reached for them and I grabbed them. And if I didn't have the means to get there, I found the means to get there, but it shouldn't have been as hard as it was for me. And everything I do, I do to make somebody who was in my position be able to be where I am now without working as hard. Um, just to have the information, to know their rights, to know how they can get out of the positions that they're in. Like all the assistance that we have, like public housing, food stamps, all of that stuff, it shouldn't be meant to keep people in these situations of poverty. It should be meant to empower them. And you do work with BLRR, Black Love Resists and the Rust. Yes, I love Fleur. Um, I, I'm not as active as I would like because law school takes a lot of my time. Um, but all of the people at Blur have just inspired me. They're professionals in the activism field. You know, I really learn. Blur has a level of empathy that even I don't possess. Um, and so I really am learning how to be a more worldly, empathetic person. Because growing in a, up in Akron, I wasn't around too many diverse mm-hmm. people. And so even now, this is it's hard for me. I have to learn um, my own biases and I have to learn how to really be more open. And I think that's why I'm a little bit more, um, I guess, empathetic towards the people stuck in their ways because I know what it's like to not know and then I know what it's like to learn and change my own opinion. Lenada Garlock is here. She's a law student, a student attorney at the University of Buffalo Law School. You, you spoke of how you do a lot of this work through the UB Law School for credit. And I know that part of uh, what you have done in that regard was a trip recently to Puerto Rico. Tell me about it. <laughs> so for me, it was fun, but it was also heartbreaking. Um, my mother was born in Puerto Rico, um, and I actually got to see where she was born. I got to see where my son's father is from Puerto Rico. I got to see where my son's family's from. Um, and it was amazing because it's the most beautiful place on earth. I got to swim in the sea with fishes. Um, but it was heartbreaking. And- because they're still dealing with Hurricane Maria yeah. and the earthquakes. And Hurricane Fiona, even more recently, there there are issues there. The hurricanes aren't the disaster. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. Most of Puerto Rico's problems come from America um, and colonization. Explain. Um, Puerto Rico... They're they're suffering from a pandemic called disaster capitalism. So whenever a disaster happens, it's publicized that the disaster is the problem, like Fiona and like mm. we've heard all about these. All that's all we hear about. What we don't hear about is the millions of dollars in FEMA funding that is just mismanaged and disappears, or all the tax breaks that are given to these big companies to provide help, but in the contracts there's no enforcement provisions. So they're they're spending all this money to help Puerto Rico, but it's never going to Puerto Rico because it was never intended to go to Puerto Rico. And there's no one checking these to make sure that it happens. And the result on Puerto Rico is that these people, um, the cities are getting gentrified. They're getting built up for tourist attractions. They're spending billions of dollars to exploit the culture and the natural resources. Um, and then the people are getting displaced. But it's not like Buffalo where they can just move to Chictawaga or Kenmore. They have nowhere else to go. And um, so being that Puerto Rico is half of who I am and Buffalo is half of who I am, um, I really hope that I can find solutions to both problems and use my expertise in both areas to really make both places more equitable. Talk more about what that looks like down there, though. What do you do? So that's a hard thing down there because it's not like Buffalo to where everything is um, systemic and where you have 
these specific means to go buy things, you know. In Buffalo, you can see how many cats versus people there are. You can search that statistic and have it, and it's accurate. Um, in Puerto Rico, there's no centralized data. So there's no way for you to, like, learn and then present because there's no way to get the information except for talking. To and while, many. yes, they are part of the United States, I imagine there's not as many legal protections or structures that you can you can use to your advantage. If, exactly. if someone is being mistreated here in Buffalo, you can say, hey, that's against the law. Hey, I'm going to litigate or at least we have reason to discuss this here. And there are definitely legal protections. Um, their court system is pretty advanced, just like ours. Um, however, the issue is their police system is nowhere near. They are so understaffed. Um, it's hard to get to a lot of places in the island. Um, there's not ever power on the island, so cell service isn't always reliable. Um, so, yeah, it can be really hard to enforce these things, especially when the people committing the crimes are white-collared billionaires. There's no way to attack at all and I mean there's also corruption too so it's maybe not not even safe to attack all the issues that you see there. You, you said something about parallels to Buffalo and I want to get to that after the break but one other area I did need to touch on you've also been active in the idea of gender discrimination but particularly LGBTQ plus elders. Elders. Yeah. There was a lot of baby boomers who were in the alphabet mafia, and now <laughs> they are headed to nursing homes, and there's no protections for them. There's no, you know, we have, like, gender-neutral bathrooms. Now, we, the millennial and Gen Z age, we have so many things to accommodate our alphabet mafia, which I'm also part of. But for the elderly, there's nothing protecting them. And in fact, we've actually seen nursing homes turning away transgender individuals saying that they don't have the medical um, equipment to, their equipment isn't fit for to accommodate such Locally, things. here in Western New York. Um, here in Western New York, all over New York, all over America. This is a huge national pandemic like that we're seeing, epidemic that we're seeing. And there's absolutely no case law on it. Glenetta Garlock is with us. We're going to take a short break, be back with her in just a second. She's involved in all sorts of activism, including some of the UB law clinics. She's a student attorney there. Much more to come. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Do you absolutely love Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, PBS NewsHour, great performances, and other amazing shows on WNED-PBS? But you're not always in front of your TV when they're on. Don't miss them. You can stream the channel live wherever you are in Western New York by visiting WNED.org live or use the WNED-PBS app. WNED Classical has been conducting interviews of their own on YouTube with the classical music community. Have you ever wondered what goes into the performances you hear on WNED Classical? Head on over to our Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube page to see the collection of interviews that we've orchestrated. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. This is Buffalo What's Next where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. 
And this is David Ebo. We're here with Glenada Garlock. She's a student attorney in all the various law clinics at UB. She's also uh, heavily involved in activism across the board. A lot of issues you probably heard us get into before the break. And before the break, you said that there is, especially if if you're looking at something like Puerto Rico and the work you've done there, that there are some parallels here to Buffalo. Explain. Tell me more. Yeah. So um, a huge problem in Puerto Rico is segregation, um, which obviously we struggle with here in Buffalo. Um, And and it all dates back to history, just how Buffalo does. Um, So a lot of people think Christopher Columbus came to America, but he actually went to like Haiti and Puerto Mm -hmm. Rico. Mm -hmm. And um, so then when he brought back when he, the Taino people, the indigenous people, were killed from 50,000 to 1,200. Um, he went to Nigeria, um, and that's where they captured the Yoruba tribe and brought them to Puerto Rico. Um, so in Puerto Rico, you see a lot of people, actually like 75% of the island like claims that they're white. They, they um, claim that Spanish side of them. Um, and then there is a small population of people who just claim their indigenous side. Um, often they live in like the middle of the island. Um, and then on the coastal region, you see a lot of the the African descent people. Um, some have come recently from other places in the Caribbean, or um, and they've 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 moved there. Um, but a lot of them have just been there generationally, um, and so you see a very segregated island. Um, and obviously, we know what segregation comes in unequal resources. Um, and so, I mean, that's a huge problem in Buffalo too. Of how do you serve certain populations? Um, and then there's also a huge thing of gender violence on the island, which we really struggle with here in Buffalo. It was weird. It kind of felt like home when I was um, speaking with uh, the different universities on the current issues that were on the island. Buffalo is balkanized. Yes. <laughs> into neighborhoods that are based on race. Yeah, exactly. 70, help me with the number, 73 percent of the African-Americans in Buffalo live east of Main the, Street? I, I don't know the exact number, but it's something like that. It's yeah. close to that yeah, number, if that's not it. What's even crazier about Buffalo, though, is the rings. So in Buffalo's the first ring. The second ring is, like, kind of more Chictawaga area, like that. Yeah. And so the first ring is, like, what, like 70% even, or, like, 80 90% diverse. You get to the next ring, it drops down to, like, 20 30% diverse. Mm. Then you get to the outside ring, which is, like, Transit Akron. Road, <laughs> Lewiston, yeah. and the number drops down to, like, 5% diversity. And I'm like, yeah. how is that crazy of a drop? I grew up in Alma, and I'm significantly older than you, but <laughs> in, in my high school, the joke was, yeah, we're diverse, we have a Jewish family. Yeah. That was it. Exactly. It was an all-white district. Yeah. No, that's exactly how it is. Akron's still the same way. Um, it's it's so crazy. That's why we need affordable housing out there. We need to start getting people in units out there. And it's interesting because the suburbs and the rural areas do actually have a lot of affordable housing, but they're only elderly and disabled housing. Mm. Yeah, Akron alone has three public housing units, but they're only available to elderly or disabled. Is that because of policy or just the way it's developed? Um, so, like, the the um, units themselves are the elderly ah. or disabled units. Um, but I think it... I think it goes into systemic, like like we want to ha- we want to help our people here. So we have our population that's aging, that's on social security. We want to help that population, but we don't care about the younger generation that needs that, which are, um, are obviously mostly more concentrated in the city. Um, so 
So, yeah, it's just, it's bizarre. Talk to me in the remaining little bit we have here about how to affect change. Earlier you addressed it in the context of uh, race relations, but more generally, what can we do perhaps on the east side of Buffalo to get rid of the segregation or to get rid of the substandard housing uh, or to get rid of the poverty or the bad education rate, uh, graduation rates, that sort of thing? So the biggest thing I learned in law school, the number one theme is closer to the problem, closer to the solution. And I also had to learn, which was a really hard thing for me. Does that mean, let, let me probe it a little further. Does that mean that the solutions have to come from the community? Because that lets other people off the hook, doesn't it? It it does. It does. So it's not, it's not necessarily um, a this for that. So accountability is still important. But it just means that people like me aren't the solutions. People like me have the access to the solutions and have the resources needed for the solutions. But the more educated I am, the more money I make from my career that I'm going to have, the farther away I am from the problem. And that's why it's important for me to empower the people who are closest to the solution. Everything I do with my activism is just trying to empower others to have the resources to be able to know how to speak to our legislation, to know how to write laws. Because, I mean, writing laws is easy. People think it's so hard. It's not. You just have to know how to do it. And that's something that anyone can teach you. And how to, I, I do, like, the work that I do with the sheriff's office. That was so easy. We literally just asked the sheriff's office if we could come in and have a conversation with us. And they're like, yeah. Well, yeah, okay. Of course. Wow. So, Because <laughs> you're right. I think this against the stereotype that, oh, we don't want any new ideas. Um, no, they just don't have resources. Okay. No one has resources. Um, so if we are all able to do our part, and it doesn't even have to be a big part. I do way more than I should have to do. But if we all just did a little part and we all had a small commitment to making Buffalo better tomorrow than it was today, I think the things that we could change would be exponential. It just starts with having basic empathy, basic care for our neighbors. And we can really do a big change. You know, we've seen the East Side. We had the Tops Massacre, which was horrible for our community. But the Juneteenth that followed oh, yeah. was insane. I have never seen so many people in one area smiling, laughing, having fun. Like if anywhere can solve the problems that we have in our community, I know Buffalo can. And so I just want to help people be inspired to do that. And this question might be uh, an obvious one, but I think it's a nice way to sort of end the program. Are you an optimist? Actually, no. <laughs> wow. Well, with, with all of the activism, with all of the potential for change, you still do this and yet you're a pessimist. Explain. Um, I don't know if I'm a pessimist. I. But you're not an optimist. Okay. I just think that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. But I just think that that's okay. The mitigation factor again. And it's so funny. My my professor, Heather Abraham, she always is like, you charge into everything so enthusiastically. And I'm like, yes, I do. But if it doesn't work out, I'll just be like, okay, and then I'll charge in the next thing enthusiastically. <laughs> because if it does work out, then it looks like I always planned for that from the beginning. <laughs> but um, in my life, everything that could go wrong has always gone wrong. And so I've just had to figure out how to get to the next step. I've never let it stop me. If a door closes, I'll find one that's open. If there's a roadblock, I'll climb over it. If I can't, I'll bust through it or I'll find a different path that doesn't have a roadblock. So um, I'm a realist. I think that there's good and bad in every person. There's good and bad in every situation. I think if more people, like a huge problem we have is that when someone makes a mistake, we like disqualify them from everything. We're like, oh, you're done, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. 
But instead, I think we should have more of an attitude where if someone makes a mistake, they probably know what they did wrong, and we could all use it to not make that mistake again. Um, I think we need to get more comfortable with making a mistake. So I'm not an optimist because I don't think that everything's butterflies and rainbows, but I think we can still find joy when it's not. Perfect. Thanks so much for the discussion. <laughs> this has been great fun. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Glenada Garlock is a student attorney at the University of Buffalo's Law School. This is Dave Debo. It's Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. More to come. Stay with us. Buffalo is home to many historical treasures, including architectural gems. Central Terminal affected everybody. Everybody from the common man to the movie star walked this concourse. Beloved community establishments. They might get a glimpse to see Lena Horne. Uh, they might uh, see Dizzy or Miles Davis, uh, you know, Charlie Parker. And homes for local sports teams. When we talk about an institution, Memorial Auditorium was an institution. The WNED PBS original production, Remembering Western New York, Explore some of these iconic structures and their connection to people who live in the region. There was a time when Buffalo's Main Street was the focus of holiday shopping in Western New York. Watch Remembering Western New York now on YouTube. NPR's Student Podcast Challenge is back. Student podcasters in grade 5 through 12 can submit entries. The deadline is April 28th. Visit npr.org slash studentpodcastchallenge2023 for more information. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. Our guest in this uh, segment of the show, Razia Hill. Uh, Razia is uh, not only the founder and executive director, but also the the employee for every bottom covered. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I am. <laughs> thanks for joining us, Razia. Thank you for having me. Uh, most it. certainly a, a pleasure for sure. And uh, let's get right into what every bottom covered. It's a, a nice, clever name, of Thank course, you. for a, a service, not a service, but a, an effort to make sure that children, small children, have their bottoms covered. With diapers. Yes, we are the diaper bank. So similar to a food bank, we provide a supplemental supply of diapers to low-income families in underserved communities uh, just to address the importance of diaper need and how it affects the whole community. I see on your T-shirt, ask me about one in three. Yes. What is one in three? One in three families experience diaper need on a national level. In Buffalo, uh, we have a 40% poverty rate. So, again, you can know that that's actually closer to half of our community living in poverty. Um, And so that is what our work addresses is that one in three and making sure that families have that adequate supply. And that also we educate government on inclusion of diaper demonstration programs such as ourselves in the funding that's going around because diapers are not purchasable by SNAP or WIC. And let's go back to the roots of Every Bottom Covered and how it started for you. Yes. Tell me about your story. Uh, I am a single mother, and when my son was in his infancy, I struggled with the ability to keep an adequate amount of supply of diapers, even considering myself the working poor and being able to still go to work and work a 40-hour work week and still come up short and have to make that decision of, 
either food and, you know, adequate clothing based on season or what have you or transportation, other issues that I had going on. I had to kind of make those decisions on what would skimp in our household. So leaving the diaper on too long, mm. um, my friends and family members having the same issue and having diaper rash in their homes. So um, it's a, a labor of love for me. Because when I was in a position to be able to start a 501c3 and start a nonprofit organization, I did so out my paycheck. I purchased diapers for the first year so that I operated every bottom covered. And I started in my living room and delivered from my vehicle. Um, so it's very much so a personal journey for me. I know that the feelings that I had around not being able to adequately supply that for my child are things that I would never want another family to, to worry about. So I do the work from a place of not only necessity, because after 13 years of raising a child in a low-income household, there was still nowhere that families could get diapers. So um, addressing a need that had been long um, unmet and then um, that is affecting so many other parts of our, our community. Children can't go to daycare. Families can't go to work, uh, missing up to four days of work. We have uh, children going to the emergency room for th something that's preventable. They get diaper rash and urinary tract infections and yeast infections. So we have clinics that are treating things that don't have to exist if children are properly diapered. I want to step back to something that you said. Yes. And, yeah, you, and if you can, because it's been a lot of uh, a lot of time since then, but you you mentioned the feelings yes. that you had at that time. Yes, if you can, as best you can, share sure. share what that what that felt like. I mean, I, I you know I'm a parent. You know, I know those those difficult decisions you have to make. But yes. this is a decision I never had to make. Uh, you feel hopeless. Um, there is a feeling of hopelessness and not being able to provide such a basic need. Children can't go without diapers. I mean, it's not something that you can put off purchasing until you have more money. Children need to stay, stay dry and clean. I mean, a child with a wet diaper cries a lot more. Right. You know, they're uncomfortable and therefore you're uncomfortable, even if it's in a mental space. Um, the depression and anxiety of not being able to, to meet all my needs and to have someone else depending on me and not be able to meet their needs. I mean, I, I just, it does not end when a child ages out of diapers. So the, the mental health aspect of it, of a family holding on as a mother, just the worry of not being able to have still to this day, you know, lack is still a concern of mine sure. even 19 years later. How did you, how did you cope then though? You were that, you were obviously very young. I was. I was 23 when I became a mom and I was a single mother from concept. You know, I just I knew that his father was not going to be present. Um, I I I really just I did the best I could. I don't know that I fully coped, you know, again, not having access at the time to good mental health, um, not having a therapist to talk to, going down and testing these resources out myself, having to get on food stamps, having to get temporary cash assistance and the very, very nasty way that people are treated hmm. in those buildings and the, um, the way that they're looked down upon. Nobody knew that I had a private school education or I'd gone through Buffalo prep or, you know, I wasn't, my education or my IQ meant nothing. I was just number 12 at the window. And you feel like you're number 12 at the window. The building is dirty. The, the resources are lacking. It's never quite enough. And then you also have to be demeaned in some way when you're going down there to get it and threatened by the sheriff that's standing there ready to arrest you if you are too frustrated. So it's a, uh, it's a feeling I wouldn't wish on, on my worst enemy. And certainly 
putting myself in that position allows me to make sure that families never have to worry about the diapers not being present. It, it it's interesting because it it's a it's a simple solution that you've right. come up with it, but there's nothing simple about putting together. Or I, I see that you have over you've done over a million diapers we for have. people already. Yes. There's nothing simple about that. It has not been simple, no. But it is a simple gesture. So the idea again, um, we. We give families food, but we presume they have somewhere to cook it. We presume they have gas, um, a stove, refrigeration options. Again, with diapers, we give a baby a diaper, but we presume that a mother's not in a homeless shelter putting that on or that she has feminine hygiene products. It's a small gesture, but I believe that it starts conversations that will create a healthier Buffalo and a healthier community, healthier Western New York in general, which is my ultimate goal. And so um, you kind of work through it. Um, it is not easy. Starting a nonprofit of any kind is not easy, especially if you're looking for it to be impactful and, quote unquote, a success. Um, but there's always going to be children to diaper. There's always going to be communities that need this resource. So I don't consider myself even remotely starting on the process yet. We're still very much so in the infancy. Understood. Razia Hill is our, our guest uh, this morning of Every Bottom Covered here in uh, Buffalo. Interesting, although... You came out of Buffalo. Yes. You're a Buffalo uh, person, but you've uh, expanded this already throughout Western New York. Yes, we are in Allegheny County. We have four partners in Allegheny County, and we also are in Chautauqua County, and we're moving into Niagara County as well. So diaper need is pretty much everywhere that babies are and anywhere that there's a low-income uh subset in the community. So anywhere that you have jobs that are low-paying jobs, there's some babies in need in your community. So we have found the zip codes in the areas that are the most distressed, and those are the areas that we focus our initial work on, and trying to take down the transportation barrier that exists because families don't have the capability to travel from Allegheny County to Buffalo. There is no public transportation in Allegheny County. There's a digital divide there, even more so than what we experience here in Buffalo. It is interesting that you, you bring up Allegheny County because, you know, it, again, going back to how maybe you felt yes. going uh, to, to get services, you know, back when you were a young mother yes. and how you were made to feel, there's also that perception that, well, this is just a Buffalo problem, an east side Buffalo problem. Right. Allegheny County couldn't be more different than the east side of Buffalo in terms of yes. uh, racial makeup and things along those lines, yes. but yet there's still a poverty issue. Uh, extreme poverty issue. There are not a lot of resources out there. There are not a lot of um, companies or, you know, work opportunities there, education opportunities there. The nearest hospital can be 45 minutes to an hour. There is no transportation set up. Like there might be some van services or some small bus services, but they don't even have the capacity to travel from one side to the other of Allegheny County, you know, or Wellsville to Cuba, you know. And I've learned a lot about what rural poverty looks like. It may, like you said, have a different racial makeup, but still poverty nonetheless. It still requires the same resources, if not more, again, because you're in a farming and an agricultural space, and we've seen how the farming industry has taken a hit. And um, there's not a lot of assimilation into urban living or into city life, if you will. So right. um, I don't even know that they know exactly where the resources start at. And, it you know, the service like this, they they're very appreciative of it because then it gets families into the door for the other services that are available there. So I'm just kind of curious about, as you were doing that outreach, any 
did you run into any blocks, uh, any anything that, that that changed you? It was a little difficult to work your way through. Uh, I, I mean, was, I guess I, I always think that anything you're doing here probably has been difficult to work through. Oh, but, for sure. but yeah, but what about that? I've not seen a lot of opposition um, anywhere that the program has been placed. Um, sometimes people want more, you know, sure. um, just 50 diapers, but uh, that's the identified gap. So that's why we focus on 50 diapers. But uh, as far as like culturally, no, I really haven't had I haven't had that concern. I think initially when I was starting, um, I presented to pretty much all of Allegheny County, you know, the people who were the movers and shakers. And I remember one gentleman saying, well, you don't know what we need here. Uh, why don't you just tell us how you do it and basically stay where you are? Um, but thankfully, there was another woman on the call who was like, you know, I know right now of four or five organizations that would be perfect to model this. And so that energy outweighed the gentleman who said, just tell us how to do it because you don't know what we need. And I mean, I'm sure the people that he's helping um, with the work that he does, they're benefiting from our presence there. So he might be a different conversation now. Yeah, we'd like to like to revisit that. <laughs> yeah, for I sure. would too. <laughs> I bet you would. But you carried on. I, I yes, give you credit for that. Absolutely. Um, family babies need diapers. Families need supports. And this is not for me. My son is 19 years old, but this is for a healthier Western New York. So I will go wherever there are babies in distress. And um, that's that's it. I'm not deterred based on the color of my skin or the color of anyone else's. This is not an issue that knows color. Um, we deal with a lot of new Americans, a lot of refugee population, a lot of cultural barriers. But the reality is the one common thread is that they have children who have a need. And this is a need that I can meet. So just like we would not let a family starve. Based on our differences, I won't let a baby be wet if I can help. Let's uh, we we've identified the need. I want to kind of come back to that a sure. little bit here, but let's let's go now to the other part of this, which identifying need is one thing. Now getting the resources. Yes. A million diapers, over a million diapers. Yes. Um, how did you do this? <laughs> <laughs> so we are very much a community organization, very much a grassroots organization. So a lot of it was just the community stepping up. Diaper drives, organizations like the Care Connection, um, they initially stepped up and did two Amazing Mother Day, and we got like 70,000 diapers both years. And then from there, businesses get together, departments might compete with one another, you know, a jeans day and some money coming from that. Um, we have identified the need, been very direct and clear in the fact that that's where we'll address the need. And organizations have allowed, you know, have stepped up and worked alongside us. But in addition to that, we're part of the National Diaper Bank Network and we're part of Baby to Baby. And so using those two national platforms allow us to get access to larger amounts of resources. And then we just turn those resources right back out into the community. So... Um, one diaper at a time. You know, that's over going on eight years that we've distributed that amount. Again, 400000 just in Allegheny County in about not even two years. Uh, and that just shows you that people want the resource. And so we're just trying to keep meeting it, you know, keep meeting the need and um, keep fundraising, keep raising awareness, keep taking opportunities like this to kind of speak to what diaper need looks like and putting putting the word out there and talking about the public health issue that is diaper need. So that's that's the plan, and that's how we have 
It's a million. I want to be clear. It's a million diapers and pull-ups because we also do pull-ups. Sure. So it's a combination of things and um, a combination of ways that we've received them. But, yes. Yeah, we're going to give you a break on the, the pull-ups uh, <laughs> caveat just, you know, there. Just in case anyone's fact-checking. Just... <laughs> we're also pull-ups. <laughs> well, that's very good. I, I, it sounds, though, like if people started fact-checking about the reality of this, though, Yes. They would be surprised, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it is all public knowledge. You know, organizations like National Diaper Bank Network do studies. They, you know, put the the work out there. We we lobby in D.C. We lobby for federal programming. We lobby on stateside to have diapers included. And um, I think that the easy thing is throw it on TANF, which is temporary cash assistance, or add it to SNAP. But those are not... Um, checked alongside the cost of living. So as inflation goes up, those benefits don't go up. So to cut that line and to add us an addition or as a semicolon, um, it will actually take away from the programs that are already underfunded. So we are looking to create a line item, you know, and to take some of the money and some of the resources that we spend on so many other things in this nation and put that on babies because it starts in the womb. And if we don't have healthy babies, we won't have a healthy future. They're going to grow up eventually, and they're going to have all those things that we've talked about, you know, the health issues, the mental health issues, the lack of productivity in our communities. All of those things will affect us all. So I think I know the answer to this, but uh, you might even have a specific answer. Um, the price of uh, diapers has gone up here in the last two years? It has. I mean, diapers in general are between 80 to $100 per child in a household. So if you have two or three children of diapering age or you have oh. multiples, um, that is a bill that, you know, it can take up to 14 to 17 percent of the income of a family in general. So now if your income's already low, imagine 14 percent or 17 percent of your income being taxed with a basic need. And again, we put food insecurity at such a high level, but we don't put diapering or basic need insecurity on that same level because a family has access and resources to programs like SNAP, which means they have access to food. And food banks are much more common than diaper banks. But there's about 300 of us doing the work nationally. We're in Alaska, we're in Hawaii, <laughs> we're in Puerto Rico, but they'll let you know that we're everywhere that babies are. You know, I don't even know if the work's being done in Canada or being done overseas, but it's such a new concept, like 20 years, but, sure. you know, by way of, again, what we've come to know. We know about blood, giving blood or giving plasma, or, but again, we don't know that this is a basic need that without it, a child is going to go to the emergency room more, going to, a parent's going to miss that opportunity to go to school or work. They're going to miss that opportunity to socialize in daycares. It's going to put them behind to be able to go to early childhood education programs. There's so many ramifications. I'm wondering, as someone now who, like you had, you lived through this as a single mom. Yes. And now you're helping other families with this type of need. If you've developed an overall view and about how <clears throat> how society needs to address the realities of what people do not have. Yes. Have you developed a, like a larger vision about that? I mean, um, I know it's it's tough when you like you said you're trying to do it at one right. one bottom at a time here, but what about that? I I think that it is. Um, it's important to note that poverty does not have a specific look. 
people in poverty, you won't necessarily always be able to point them out and go, that person is really down in their luck. Working poor is a real statement. And people think that living check to check, we call it that, but that is a level of poverty. So again, I don't, um, how I personally frame it all is that it slows down the ecosystem. Like it slows down our lives to not have resources being addressed. People are already starting at such a disadvantage. And that is not always based on color. That is based on class. You know, and I think that if we don't define what poverty looks like, or at least attempt to define what poverty looks like, we'll constantly remain in it because we're going to not fully address it. For example, we don't raise the cost of living. We don't think about that when we are passing these laws or we're continuing on with SNAP. And in fact, we cut resources like that. And we, you know, we punish poverty. People are being cut off because they might do a little bit better, but not so well because it falls outside of the guidelines. We don't think about things like that. For example, in my personal life, my mother um, is retired. She gets SSI and she gets such a small amount of food stamps because she's a homeowner. So is the should she sell the home in order to get more food stamps? Mm. Again, it's just that type of thought process that we we don't consider. Why would we stifle her and take away the home ownership that she's worked 50 years for in order to give her a few extra dollars to eat? We just really don't frame up what poverty looks like or what hardship looks like because we're too busy personally just infighting on nonsense. You know, and if you keep it high level, then you don't think about the ground level, which is where most of the people are. You know, do you see because it's I I'm not surprised that you've thought a lot about this and, yes. I, and I appreciate your answer. And I'm just wondering, do you see any hope on that horizon? Is there enough conversation? Are there are there champions who can make a difference uh, uh, yes. for this type of thing? Yeah, I see hope. Um and I see the champions as the people who are, are down on the front lines doing the work, the people who are j just like me, who are starting organizations, who are addressing needs that they are looking at directly, who are um, championing for offices of a local nature. I think all of that is part of doing the work. I think that it is imperative that more people find where they can get involved. And it's that power in numbers that will give us the results that we need, or at least push the, the envelope, start the conversation, even with like National Diaper Bank Network doing these white pages on poverty as it's based around diapers. That has allowed us to go out and have conversations as leaders individually and then to personalize that to the communities we serve. Same thing with the work food banks do. Same thing with, you know, the work that early childhood education programs do. It's all small pockets that by us addressing them and then also collaborating with one another, we can make a more um, a more impact. We can give more impact to it. So I, I do believe that there's hope, and I hope to see it in my lifetime. But um, I think, again, we just need more people to champion good work. We're coming down to our final couple of minutes here with Razia Hill of uh, Every Bottom Covered. And I want to make sure that before we go that we get into some key information about your organization. But yes. I, I can't let this opportunity pass because you were part of what was called the Snow Plow Mafia yes. right after the Christmas blizzard. What how did that what it was that? Um, I, I try to believe that everything I do is a labor of love, and, and that, in fact, was as well. Um, being a nonprofit leader, people presumed that we were just able to get right back out here and do work. Right. They needed diapers they during needed the, diapers. the blizzard. Yeah. And 
I was in a blizzard too. We <laughs> lost power for two days. Um, we didn't know, you know, it was very hopeless, a very hopeless feeling. And um, I was uh, contacted by Kate Glazer and Lydia Dominic of Hope Rises and Buffalo Gibbs. And they were like, what can we do to help you? Because they have been great partners in general. So I was like, well, I'd love to get out and help people, but I'm snowed in my house. <laughs> and they were like, what? The plows haven't run? And I was like, uh, no. And in our community, the plows will run last year. So I'm from you live that over near the Delavan Grider yes, Community on Center. On the east side yep. of Buffalo, mm-hmm. historically, we have been plowed out last um, or very subpar. And so I didn't expect that this would be any different. And a storm of this magnitude was just unprecedented. So to that point, I don't know that they had a plan because who was planning for the the amount of of, uh, what it turned into. So um, from there, we just, in my bed, once the power came back on, just a couple text messages going around on how we could frame it and trying to get it started before the snow started to melt so that it wouldn't be heavier. And we, along with the Thurman Thomas Family Foundation and 26 Shirts, um, did the snowplow mafia and people showed up over a hundred people overnight showed up with shovels and snow blowers and plows. And we went around the six block radius of the Delavan Grider community center. And we plowed out, you know, we helped plow out the community and shovel and dig out the community. And um, I'd like to think that we opened a conversation to get the involvement of the city um, people were calling 311, trying to get their streets on the list. People wanted to know when the mafia was coming back out. <laughs> but it was really just an immediate need to um, address it and to get, you know, I live in a community just on my street of a bunch of senior citizens and homeowners, and they're in their houses by themselves. And um, I know personally of people who had heart attacks after it, of trying to dig themselves out. And it just seemed like a logical, a logical step to make sure that I could help in my community. So yes, Snowplow Mafia. Yeah. Well, thanks to, to you and your, your, your partners on that one. That's, that, that's, you know, you know, we, the, the city of good neighbors, uh, sometimes that, that cliche isn't always cliche. live up to it, does right, it? But, right. uh, in this particular case, that's amazing. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, I want to make sure before we let you go, it sounds like, you know, these diaper drives, maybe a, an office is listening right now. Yes. They might want to do something like that. What can they do? How can they how can they make this yes. happen? So we always welcome diaper drives. Um, I think that every bit helps. You know, we definitely welcome volunteers. We have a warehouse. We have to repackage diapers. Then we have to get them to our partner organizations. So we always welcome volunteers. Um, people can always donate cash. That helps us to buy diapers or helps us to ship diapers. And um, just continuing to get the word out. So everybottomcovered.org, you can always visit the website, see what else we have going on. Uh, yeah, come out and help. That is, that's ultimately what it is. We're at the Delavan Grider Community Center. So if you know someone who needs help, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, noon to four, that is where we distribute. All right. That is uh, outstanding, uh, Razia Hill. How's it, by the way, how's that uh, that young son of yours doing that you, this all started off uh, he with? He is doing wonderful. Yeah? He is thriving at Kanisha's College, and I'm so proud of him. Absolutely. Well, I, uh, Razia Hill, thanks very much for uh, joining us today on Buffalo Thank you What's for Next. Having me. I appreciate it. Razia Hill of uh, Every Bottom Covered, and you heard it, everybottomcovered.org, right? Yeah.
Yeah. All right. Very good. That's easy enough to find out. Thanks very much for being with us. And thanks for everybody to uh, for listening to Buffalo What's Next today. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown.